0: Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical-stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Bob Hughes, VP of Biochemistry at BioAge. With us today is Dr. Jennifer Garrison, professor at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and the faculty director of the Global Consortium for Reproductive Longevity and Equality, which is devoted to supporting breakthrough research on reproductive aging and women in science through funding, training, infrastructure, and collaborative intellectual networks. She also happens to be a dear friend of mine. Thank you for joining us today, Jennifer.
1: Thank you for having me, Bob. I'm really excited to be here.
0: So could you describe the mission of this consortium on reproductive longevity and equality?
1: It's a global consortium. And so our goal is really to facilitate but also accelerate translating the basic science discoveries that are made in a lab into useful products and therapies that are going to impact women's lives. Truly, we want to try to extend female reproductive span. And so what the consortium is doing is trying to engage an army of creative scientists on the one hand, but then also visionaries and people in other walks of life to work collaboratively on this problem. So essentially, we're trying to build the field. We're trying to build the ecosystem around this field of reproductive aging. And we see the consortium as, as kind of an innovation hub that's supporting both a quickly growing knowledge base from scientists, but then also essentially Putting people together who don't normally talk to each other. So that means cultivating relationships with organizations and funders on a global scale. For example, taking scientists and getting them to talk to clinicians. Increasing the dialogue between industry and biotech partners and academic scientists that are going to go beyond the traditional models. And then galvanizing and organizing non-science leaders who are going to disseminate the information that we're trying to get out there and highlight the efforts that we're putting forward because we think that there needs to be much more attention brought to this issue.
0: The core activities are based there at the Buck Institute in Novato, up in Marin County. But obviously, there's a lot of global outreach. So can you sort of describe like what's going on with inside your physical center and how that kind of disseminates out globally?
1: You know, we started a few years ago with a really generous gift from Nicole Shanahan and the Sergey Brin Family Foundation. We started a center at the Buck Institute to study female reproductive aging. And this is an intramural effort. You know, we have scientists on the ground at the Buck working on this problem. And of course, the Buck Institute is an independent research institute that has about just somewhere over 200 employees. And something like 24 labs. And so, you know, we're somewhat limited in in what we can accomplish. And in general, you know, in a scientific field, there's usually lots and lots and lots of different people in different places working on the same problem to push things forward. And in this case, we realized as we were building the center that just wasn't a lot of research going on in this area. There's plenty of people, as you guys well know, Working on aging and trying to understand molecular mechanisms of aging. And there are also plenty of scientists working on reproductive biology, particularly around assisted reproductive technologies and pregnancy and outcomes of pregnancy and development. But there are precious few scientists who are working at the interface of those two fields. And that is what we're trying to build. And so, when we started the center, we realized right away that if we really wanted to have an impact and, and truly move the needle, that we were going to have to do something bigger. And that's where the consortium came in. So the consortium has three arms to it. One is funding. So there's been just a real dearth of funding in this space, And I think that's part of the reason that there aren't very many scientists working in this area. So we are giving away grants. We gave away our first grants last August, $7.4 million to 22 scientists all over the world. The second piece of the consortium is to provide resources to try to build out the field. And so we also opened the world's first ovarian biology core facility at the Buck Institute. And this is meant to provide resources for scientists, but also to lower the barrier to entry for scientists who are coming from outside the field. You know, we want to attract as many creative people as we can. And so this gives them an entree into the fields if they haven't worked in this space before. And then the third part is building out this network that I already sort of talked about a little bit.
0: Can you describe what you consider ovarian biology, apart from the obvious, and how it fits into the broader context of longevity research?
1: Ovaries are super cool when you start to start to learn about them. And obviously, this is the key organ that distinguishes males from females, one of them anyway. And, you know, the ovary is a really complex structure. It's composed of many different cell types and substructures inside of it. And what's different about the ovary compared to every other organ in the human body is that it ages precociously meaning that it's actually the first organ by far to age in the human body. And it's aging at about two and a half times the rate of the rest of the tissues, if you think about it in terms of function. So what I mean by that is that when a woman is in her late 20s or early 30s, her ovaries are already considered geriatric by the medical establishment. That comes as an unwelcome surprise to a lot of women who don't realize that. And so, you know, when a woman's Most of her somatic tissue is functioning at peak performance. Her ovaries have already really started to decline. Separately from the aging aspect of it, ovaries are so cool. I mean, they go through this incredibly dramatic and complex dynamic remodeling that happens through every menstrual cycle in a way that doesn't happen in other tissues. It's both on a structural level, but also on a chemical and a signaling level. It's just a really dramatic remodeling that happens every month.
0: We'll get back to the science a little bit more in depth as the conversation continues. But you had mentioned Nicole Shanahan, who is the philanthropist who is working with you to create this center or has worked with you to create the center. Can you tell us a little bit about how that relationship with Nicole and you and the Buck came to be?
1: Uh, Nicole is an attorney and she had a company called Clear Access IP and uh, She came to the Buck Institute to talk to us about her company. And that led to a conversation between her and Eric Verdin, who is our CEO and president, about some of the struggles that she had gone through personally with her own fertility. And like many women, she was in her early 30s and decided to try to have a child and was confronted with this unwelcome news that, you know, that her ovaries were geriatric and that she might not be able to conceive. And as a a really intelligent and entrepreneurial person, she did a lot of research. She looked into it. And so when she was at the Buck and learning about what we do um, in terms of studying basic mechanisms of aging, she asked whether we would be willing to start a center to focus research around this question. And the question really, it's a fundamental question that is kind of surprising. We don't know the answer to this, but Just what is it that causes ovaries to decline in functions so early? You know, what is it that causes ovaries to age prematurely? And so from there, we started the center. And then after we had gone through the process of setting up the center, we were talking to Nicole about how hard it was to find faculty to hire and how tricky it was to really to canvas this area of science to find the most creative minds working on the problem. And she said, well, why is that? <laughs> like, this doesn't make any sense. This is something that's going to affect every single woman on the planet. Why aren't more people working on this? And, you know, we said, well, there's not a lot of funding. And so that's where the consortium started. And she's been an incredible partner and the Echo Foundation, which is her philanthropic foundation that's been funding this. She's, you know, really prescient, I think, in seeing that this was an area of that was kind of ripe for developments and where there's space for a lot of creative minds to come together and do something that will make a difference. But we're trying to find more people to come into this space because I think the opportunity for making a real difference is huge.
0: In terms of the funding environment, you know, as some of our listeners may know, you know the major funder of scientific research or funders are philanthropic organizations and of course, the federal government, the National Institutes of Health. And I'm sort of getting the sense that this particular question of ovarian biology as it relates to reproductive longevity may have been a neglected or overlooked topic in terms of traditional funding mechanisms. And it took a, a sort of a creative emphasis by people like you and Nicole to inject some interest into this area. Why do you think it was overlooked by sort of more mainstream biomedical research?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question. I think research on women's health is underfunded in general. When you look at the actual numbers, it's incredibly small compared to the issues that women face. And I think in general, women's health has been considered Like a specialty or a niche thing where we characterize it as a subcategory of medicine, even though it's 50% of the population. We frame a lot of things with respect to women's health in terms of the disorders of the reproductive tract, right? Like fertility, breast cancer, things like that, not as a holistic thing that affects half the people on the planet. And so that's one aspect of it. When you look at funding from the NIH, which, as you mentioned, is the largest public funding body for health in the United States. We actually ran the numbers for 2018, and while the overall NIH budget was something like, I think, $29 billion, only $5.5 billion of that was devoted to all of women's health. Now that means from conception all the way through death, which is about 15% of the overall budget. And of that, we picked out about $43 million that was devoted to female reproductive aging. It's gotten better since then. The the National Institute on Aging had the very first call for grants focused on reproductive aging in 2020, which was really spectacular. We've also successfully helped lobby the National Academy of Medicine to include reproductive aging as one of the award categories that they're considering for their Healthy Longevity Competition for the Catalyst Awards that's ongoing right now. I felt like that was a real win. But we are trying to help and assist the people who are doing the advocacy around trying to get funders to recognize this as an important problem. The other thing I would say about funding is that we need sustainable funding. And part of it is that funding is difficult for aging research in general sometimes because people think it's some kind of immutable biology. How do you change aging? People will say, they think it's impossible, so they'd rather not deal with it. Disease, on the other hand, is like a specific abnormality that you can target for intervention, but that's misguided. So since aging is a major risk factor for every chronic disease, this is one of the things that I think needs to change in the mind of funders, that targeting biology, especially where health is concerned, should be more focused around aging, I think.
0: Obviously, there are a lot of biological and medical dimensions to this particular question and problem. But there are also a lot of societal dimensions to it as well. And one thing that has been discussed is the notion that women uniquely have this time constraint that exists in their thinking and influences their planning and life choices and the notion that if you're a woman and making choices about professional advancement or life planning in general, that it's constrained in a way by reproductive longevity that doesn't apply to men or applies to a lesser degree. Do you have any comments on this idea that reproductive longevity in women constrains their life choices?
1: Both the center and the consortium, that's the reproductive longevity and equality is in the name. And that equality piece is really key to what we're doing. I think that as we make progress and advances in extending healthy longevity and health span, or the number of years that someone's healthy. If we don't address reproductive longevity, then I think gender inequality is going to get worse, not better. And that's because menopause, this thing that happens to a woman in midlife, it makes her body age faster. It really does. There's great evidence in the literature that going through menopause can accelerate aging at a cellular level by somewhere between 6 and 10%. We know that if you transplant young ovaries into an older animal that, that will extend lifespan and health span. And so beyond reproduction, certainly fertility is part of this, but beyond reproduction, the end of fertility sets off this negative cascade of health effects in a woman's body. Even in healthy women, um, menopause will increase the risk of cognitive decline, heart disease, stroke, depression, insomnia, osteoporosis, the list goes on and on. And so on a societal level, every aspect of a woman's life is influenced by the fact that her reproductive capacity is limited. From the minute I went through puberty, whether I wanted to have biological children or not, every decision that I made was overshadowed by the fact that I was going to go through this reproductive decline in midlife, this biological clock, so to speak, that was ticking in the background. Decisions about overall health, my career, family planning, this is... This is an issue of equity. Men don't have these concerns. And menopause happens right at the stage where many women are hitting the peak of their careers. And aside from those extremely detrimental health effects, those risks that go up that I just talked about, there are vasomotor symptoms associated with menopause that people characterize as being minor. But in fact, they really affect women's quality of life. You know, hot flashes, brain fog, insomnia, these kinds of things like truly, truly impact quality of life and can have extremely detrimental effects on a woman's ability to function on a regular basis. So yeah, we think of this as being truly an issue of equality.
0: I was surprised to learn that menopause is relatively rare in the animal kingdom. And I had always naively assumed that this was something that impacted all animals or vertebrates like dogs and cats and various 4 legged creatures. But that's not the case, right?
1: No, no. Humans are really weird. <laughs> We're very unusual as a species. There's almost no other species. There's very few species that go through menopause. It's us, four species of whale, <laughs> belugas, narwhals, killer whales, and I think short shortfin pilot whales which are not on the same branch of the evolutionary tree, by the way. You know, so it's not a biological imperative. It does not seem to be necessary since most species don't do it. And we're in the extreme minority. There's some question about whether there's some species of monkey that will also go through menopause. But really, they have menstrual cycles and hormonal patterns that are comparable to humans. But from an evolutionary perspective they don't go through this reproductive senescence, meaning that they cycle pretty much almost right up until they die. They have some things that are in common in terms of the way that their hormones change, but the cycling part of it stays the same. Anyway, yeah, so it's just us and some whales.
0: (laughs) Well, it's interesting that whales are also noted for being a particularly long-lived species, so that could be a coincidence or maybe there's some connection there between longevity and menopause, that these things could be coupled in some way biologically. Have you gotten the opinions of evolutionary biologists as to why humans amongst the primates may be unique in this regard of having menopause?
1: Yeah, actually, and you know, this is definitely not my area of expertise, but one of the people that we have in the center at the Buck Institute is an evolutionary biologist. Her name is Dina Amira, and she spent her whole career studying the evolution of female physiology. So she worked on the evolution of menstruation and the evolution of pregnancy during her PhD and her postdoctoral work. And now she's actually writing a book about the evolution of menopause. You know, talking to her is fascinating because, you know, we really don't know why human females go through menopause. And I think if we could answer that question, along with a few others, we would be a long way down the road towards our goal, which is essentially to figure out what causes ovarian aging and to delay it or to get rid of it altogether. It's a really interesting thing to think about.
0: There's a lot of debate within the aging research community about whether aging writ large, could be considered a disease. Certainly, there are a lot of age-dependent conditions like osteoporosis, decline in cognitive function, decline in muscle mass, also known as frailty, which could clearly be viewed as kind of pathological states. Do you think menopause could be considered a disease sort of along the lines that we now recognize, say, osteoporosis as being a disease or a pathological condition?
1: That's an interesting question. Is menopause, could menopause be considered a disease? Well, I guess it depends on how you define disease, since this is something that's going to happen to every single woman on the planet, right? It's one of the most robust phenomenon in human physiology. (laughs) There's no one who escapes this in the same way that there's no humans that are going to escape death. There's no female who's going to escape this. So if we can consider a disease to be something that affects half the population without fail, which I'm not sure that we can. I'm not sure, I guess, is my answer. But that's an interesting thing to think about.
0: Yeah, it's a tricky question. On a side note there, is there any data out there? You know, we we talk about these sort of super centenarians. And interestingly, a lot of them are women, these people who live you know, well past the age of 100. Have there been any observations that suggest that people who lived these extreme old ages may have experienced menopause later in life?
1: Yes, that's actually one of the few things in the literature where there's been strong data. So there's at least nine studies that I know of that show a positive correlation between extended fertility or extended reproductive span or time at menopause, age at menopause, and longevity in women. So women who have later menopause tend to live longer. They also have an enhanced ability to repair their DNA. Women with natural menopause before the age of 40 are twice as likely to die compared with natural menopause after age 50. So that link is very clear. There is a clear link between reproductive span and lifespan in women, and we don't know why. And again, I think if we could answer that question, why does a woman's reproductive span correlate with her overall lifespan, we would have gone a long way towards understanding what's causing ovarian aging.
0: One goal of this consortium is to understand the underlying biology, but presumably the further goal of that is to think about how one might intervene or change the course of this biology in some way that would benefit the individuals who are wanting to enjoy a better health span or a longer health span. So what do you think are the main questions we need to really grapple with to understand ovarian aging? And then we can move on to thinking about how we might go about influencing that through intervention.
1: The key question is, what is the cue? What are the fundamental drivers of ovarian aging? So we know a lot about the downstream consequences, but what are the fundamental drivers? What is the cue or the timer or the constellation of cues and timers that so reproducibly tell a woman's ovaries to start declining when she's in her 20s? I think until we know what that causative factor or factors are, everything that we're doing is a band-aid. That's the most important question to answer. Related to that, I think understanding why it's so variable at the level of the individual. Normal, quote unquote normal menopause is defined as a window that spans 14 years. So if you go through menopause before age 41, that's considered early. If you go through menopause after age 54, that's considered late. There's no other signature in human health that is so variable. And so trying to understand why it correlates with a woman's overall lifespan, why it's so incredibly variable at the level of the individual, why it happens at all, (laughs) right? Those questions, I think, are the fundamental questions that we need to answer.
0: You know, in the aging research field, people have focused on these so-called hallmarks of aging or the idea that in tissues throughout the body, there are certain kind of signature events that can be measured or correlated with longevity and age-related decline. And you had mentioned DNA damage, genomic integrity, metabolic activity, those sorts of things, protein quality control. Are these things being studied in ovarian systems and shown to be in some way compromised at an earlier time than other tissues in the body?
1: Yes, There's a lot of research going on in this space now, much of it funded by the consortium, I will say. But I think there's promising leads around thinking about mitochondria. There's a lot of research going on in every aspect of what you would consider the hallmarks of aging. But it's kind of shocking how many sort of basic questions haven't been answered. There's just a lot of work that needs to be done. And this is what we're trying to do is to see these ideas and to get scientists to start focusing on this problem. So one of the things that's been great about having the center at the Buck Institute is that, as you know, Bob, we are diverse. We have scientists working on all aspects of aging biology. And so planting reproductive biologists and this reproductive biology hub facility at the Buck means that we've got this cross-pollination of ideas. And now Scientists who before were working in muscle or fat or the liver or the brain on questions related to aging, they're now saving the ovaries <laughs> uh-huh. and looking at the ovaries. You know, they're taking whatever question they were asking in another organ system and applying it to ovaries. So things are accelerating really quickly.
0: Well, one of your basic research, I should note for our listeners that you have a very robust basic research program and run a laboratory at the Buck Institute that's focused on the neuroendocrine axis of longevity in model systems. So I would imagine that when you think about menopause as a systems level phenomenon, it's obviously not just the ovaries sitting there in isolation sort of doing their thing, but they're getting lots of inputs From different organ systems. And clearly one of those is the brain ovary axis. So can you shed a little light about how the brain may be communicating with the ovaries and vice versa as having some sort of synergistic roles in the progression of reproductive longevity?
1: Oh yeah. And I could talk about this all day. Sure. I mean, uh, yeah. There's no question that the brain is a key player for reproductive success. I mean, it controls all aspects of female reproduction: P- puberty, menstruation, fertility, conception, pregnancy, childbirth, child care, and ultimately menopause. I think. But it actually, you know, if you if you look at the the popular press, the brain is almost entirely absent from the conversation about what it means to become a mother, about what it means uh, for menopause. So this is something that I'm trying to focus on because honestly, I think that this is where we're going to find that cue or timer. And clearly I'm biased, so you should take all of this with a big grain of salt. But I think that you know the link between the brain and the ovaries and other reproductive organs is going to be the key. And maybe a lot of people don't realize that there's a constant dynamic ongoing conversation between the brain and reproductive organs that's basically determining what happens in the system. And that the language of that communication is mediated by these chemicals that travel back and forth in the circulation between the brain and the ovaries and the uterus. And while we know some of the key words in that conversation, which are things like steroid hormones that everyone's heard of, like estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, and some neuropeptides like oxytocin or GnRH or kisspeptin, the full lexicon of that conversation has yet to be defined. And how those pieces fit into this more complex network of communication between the brain and the ovaries to drive fertility and maybe to drive menopause is a puzzle. And that's what we're working on. So we're trying to understand in the part of the brain that controls reproductive neural circuits, how is the activity of those neurons changing during a, a cycle in young animals and then how how does that change over time in aged animals does that make sense
0: absolutely i think it's a very important and clearly complex question from a drug development point of view if you know to be very simplistic if we could magically have a pill that could forestall put off or even abolish menopause would the target of that pill be in the brain or in the ovary or somewhere in between. I know that's a big question and and I don't expect you to answer it here, but it is an interesting way of posing a question about where would such a drug or pharmacologic agent act. So in terms of development of interventions, the tried and true model for drug development or pharmacologic development has been testing things in, say, cellular systems And in vivo systems like mice or rats, and trying to model a particular phenomenon in, say, a mouse or a rat, and then seeing whether we could sort of correct or impact that phenomenon, in this case, say, menopause. Now, given the fact that we've, as we discussed earlier, that there is no menopause that we know of in mice or rats, how do we address that from a kind of a animal model system, do we need to create animals that get menopause and see if we can correct it? Or do we have to be more creative in thinking about how animal models or model systems could be brought to bear on this problem?
1: Yes, I think the answer is that we definitely need better animal model systems. So the way that people approach this now is in mice or in rats, they'll take the ovaries out of a young animal, And in that way, that's thought to mimic what happens during menopause in human females. And it does mix some aspects of that. Certainly, when you take out the ovaries, you remove all of the hormones and the chemicals that they're releasing. But, you know, it's also a really dramatic and it's like a cliff. You know, it's not really mimicking what's happening in a woman's body. Um, It is a great model for young women who have cancer and who have to have their ovaries removed. That's a fantastic model. The other really good model for menopause and ovarian aging are rhesus macaques. But doing research in monkeys is not just difficult, but it's also expensive. And that's not something that is going to be widely available. And we certainly, we don't want to do that on a large scale. So there's a lot of room for innovation here. And we actually funded some grants through the JCRLE to develop better models of menopause in animals. And then there are potentially on the horizon, there are more sort of ex vivo models that might be more useful, like, for example, organoids um, or organs on a chip. Uh, One of the members of our center, Francesca Duncan, has been working on a platform that has ex vivo, in a microfluidic environment, cells and tissues from all the major organ systems that are important for reproduction, except for the brain. (laughs) So you need to hook the brain in there. But, you know, basically setting up an in vitro system that would use human tissue and cells as opposed to animal tissue and cells. There's a huge opportunity for innovation in terms of finding better models.
0: So for our non-technical listeners who may have not heard the term organoid, This is a kind of a fast-moving, very current area of research of trying to model organs or reconstruct organs in in vitro from cells using tissue engineering principles. Are there a lot of efforts of trying to actually grow ovaries in vitro and get them to do things that ovaries do?
1: I know of a few. (laughs) I know of a few, but no, there hasn't been a huge focus in this space.
0: Okay, that's interesting. You could potentially grow an ovary next to a brain organoid and watch them talk to each other. I know that sounds a bit far-fetched, but um, it's probably not far around the corner. Probably not. Okay, so let me ask you this. There's a lot of fertility-based technologies that have been implemented within the medical research community. We haven't talked upon oral contraception, But obviously, in the 60s, the development of oral contraception, i.e. the pill, was considered a revolutionary landmark in changing the lives of women and men and families by allowing people to take control of their reproductive potential in a fairly safe and non-invasive way. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you have in vitro fertilization, or IVF, as a rather large kind of medical enterprise where people who are having difficulty conceiving can take various interventions and have the medical establishment help them conceive through uh, technological means. So this forestalling of menopause would be sort of the next wave of medical intervention in taking control or allowing people to exercise choice in their reproductive lives. So can you comment on this sort of third wave, if you will, of technology and with IVF and contraception and now menopause as being an umbrella of things that allow women to make choices about their reproductive health and strategies?
1: That's the goal is to give women more choice and control over their own bodies. Contraception is amazing. And I think many women assume incorrectly that if they're not ovulating, you know, if they're taking, for example, a birth control pill, and that keeps them from ovulating, that they aren't losing eggs. And that's not true. So... Menopause is defined by a woman running out of eggs. It's a very strange system that humans have evolved. A female fetus has all of the eggs it's ever going to have at 26 weeks gestation, somewhere between 6 and 7 million. And by the time birth comes around, that number has declined already to 1 million. At the time of puberty, that number has gone down to 300,000. And then once menstruation starts, woman loses about 1,000 eggs per month until she runs out. And it's not just the number of eggs that declines, it's also the quality of the eggs. And we have absolutely no idea, no idea whatsoever, (laughs) where along that trajectory the driving force for ovarian aging occurs. It could happen during development. It could happen in early childhood, it could happen during puberty. It could happen in young adulthood. It could happen in midlife. We have absolutely no idea. But separately from that, we don't know what it is. You know, we don't understand what makes a good egg. We don't know what it is that causes this precipitous decline. You know, by the time a woman actually might want to use her ovaries, <laughs> you know, she's left with approximately two to three percent of the number of eggs that she started with. In terms of technology, that birth control has been amazing but it doesn't do anything to help along the reproductive aging trajectory. IVF, or assisted reproductive technologies, they're what we have. I think of them as Band-Aids. One of the things that I think a lot of women don't realize is that we don't really know what makes a good egg. That's one of the questions that should be answered. We don't know what makes a quality egg. We certainly don't know how to freeze them. And we also don't know really how to thaw them. And so there's this promise that's been made to young women that if they freeze their eggs, that later in life when they want to have children, that they have some sort of, a, you know, an insurance policy is just a myth. It's something that I think is really should be publicized more. I think it's something like 15, you need 15 oocytes frozen to get one functional oocyte out. And that's a lot of eggs. So in terms of the third wave of technology, I think of IVF and birth control as kind of band-aids. But if we can figure out what causes menopause and push it off, this is something that will affect not just fertility, but also a woman's overall health trajectory.
0: I don't know if it's still very popular, but maybe a decade ago, there was a lot of discussion of estrogen replacement in postmenopausal women. And I get the feeling that it's sort of fallen into disfavor. Do you know anything about the current status of estrogen replacement as a Way of mitigating the effects of menopause, negative effects of menopause in women?
1: I do. Oh. <laughs> to be clear, I'm not a medical doctor, sure. so I'm not going to be giving any medical advice. But I actually did a whole webinar on this topic, just this topic, in conversation with an OBGYN. And what we did is we talked about the misinformation about hormone replacement therapy and the WHI study, which really just dramatically hurt a lot of women, and there's still physicians who give bad advice about this. So there was a study that was picked up by the popular press, and it has women worrying about cancer that they're never going to get. And there's a lot of reasons why the study was flawed. And I spent, you know, an hour talking about it. So (laughs) I won't do that here. But the bottom line is that hormone replacement therapy is probably the best band-aid we have to mitigate the negative health consequences of menopause. Now, you know, it's something where a woman should have a conversation with her physician and has to take into account all of the things about her as an individual, including her family history. For someone who has a family history of breast cancer, then the conversation will be very different than someone who doesn't have a family history of breast cancer. But in general, the positive effects of doing hormone replacement therapy far outweigh any sort of risk. I think the risk of breast cancer, if you're taking estrogen after menopause, is something like 1% per year. And when you compare that to what will actually happen when those hormones go away after your ovaries start functioning, it's dramatic. And particularly with respect to heart disease, before menopause, heart disease is like number six or number seven, somewhere down the list of causes of death in women. And after menopause, it becomes the number one killer of women. The other thing that has really hurt, I think hurt a lot of women is this misinformation around how long they should take hormone replacement therapy. So for some unknown reason, the current medical advice is to take hormone replacement therapy for five years after menopause and then to stop, which is exactly not what you want to do <laughs> because what happens is when you stop you know when you stop having either natural hormones from the ovaries or, hormone replacement therapy, the receptors that are there, the things that sense those hormones, if there's nothing for them to sense, they get turned off. And so what that means is that you can't fix a 75-year-old menopausal woman who's not had any hormone replacement therapy for 10 years. But you can take someone who's just gone through menopause and keep them on hormone replacement therapy and keep a lot of those negative health effects at bay.
0: Very briefly, though, there's also been some discussion about hormone replacement and cognitive function, Alzheimer's disease. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Oh, absolutely. The part of the brain that controls reproductive function, where most of those circuits are based, is in the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is responsible for lots of different things, including circadian rhythms and social behavior and body temperature regulation. And so when you think about sort of the symptoms of menopause and where the reproductive circuits are located, it it kind of brings everything into sharp relief. And so I think there are studies showing that there's a positive benefit to doing hormone replacement therapy on cognitive function.
0: In terms of societal impacts and how this impacts larger communities and not just the individual, say, from an economic perspective, How would extending female reproductive lifespan influence economic or societal functions?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to understand just how profound the economic impact of menopause is on the world. So right now, there are about 50 million women in America who are currently in menopause, and we're adding 2.2 million women every year. But worldwide, by 2025, there's estimated to be over 1 billion with a B women experiencing menopause throughout the world, which is going to be over 10% of the global population. So whether you're a man, a woman, young, old, menopause is something that we need to be concerned about. And that's because it's costly. So the annual healthcare costs associated with menopause are estimated to be over $600 billion a year. And then the economic costs due to productivity loss from those vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats About 75% of women in menopause experience those. Those economic costs are estimated to be over $150 billion a year. And those are the numbers on the low end. So as a society, I think we can no longer ignore this. This is a topic that we desperately need to address.
0: There's been a lot of interest in aging research in general, but also in the biotech and drug development community here in the Bay Area and globally and companies are popping up all over the San Francisco Bay Area that have aging somewhere in the title. Do you sense that there's a trend for reproductive aging specifically being a theme that might be emerging in the biotech or drug development industry?
1: Yes, absolutely. And this is one of the things we're trying to do through the consortium is to kind of to mold the way that industry and academic partners are working together so that both opportunities, but also partnerships are realized much earlier than they would be otherwise. In terms of biotech and pharma, there's a huge amount of interest here, both on the venture side and the funder side, but also in terms of early stage companies that are either in seed or very early stage funding. They're multiplying, which is amazing. And we're super excited about that. And there's lots of areas in which they're operating. So Redefining diagnostics is one place that I think is really obvious and ripe for change. And you know, the tools we use right now, like taking temperature and blood tests that take the static snapshot of what is a dynamic fluctuating system, there's a lot of innovation happening there. There's also a lot of innovation happening around applying AI and bioinformatics to large data sets. There are companies that are popping up that are really streamlining and innovating around hormone replacement therapy. So there have been lots and lots and lots of different kinds of hormone replacement that have been approved by the FDA, but they're generally not prescribed by doctors. And I think a lot of that has to do with just a lack of knowledge about what's available. And so there are some great companies like EverNow That are popping up. And what they're doing is they're basically taking everything that is available and tailoring it at an individual level to women. Those things are are really exciting. And then there are companies that are trying to innovate around the kinds of questions that we were just talking about. So for our grantees and also for the members of the center, we put together a translational advisory board with experts in pharma and biotech and venture and RD so that they can help us identify at an early stage, anything that might be translatable and work with scientists directly to help them move things more quickly into a space that can move into women's hands faster.
0: Wow, that sounds really exciting. A translational advisory board. I would love to be a fly on the wall at those discussions. <laughs> if you took everything we knew today, you, know, you brought all the experts in the world and said, what can we do with our current status of knowledge And we had to just run with that. Is there a kind of a plausible set of technologies that could be implemented almost immediately? Or are there still these kind of unanswered questions that we really need to get past in order to make that jump into translation?
1: I think the basic science has to happen first. I can't emphasize that more strongly. Otherwise, like I said, everything we're doing is a Band-Aid. And I think we've made significant inroads, particularly in the last few years, into unraveling these basic mechanisms that contribute to ovarian aging. And there are some promising cellular targets on the horizon, things like we mentioned earlier, like oocyte mitochondria or ovarian inflammation. But there's dramatic amounts of basic research that has to happen first. And that's part of why we're trying to fund scientists to work on this problem. But I do think in the next like five to 10 years that some of these targets and maybe some that we don't even know about yet are going to serve as the foundation for systematic drug development, screening, therapeutic interventions, preclinical trials in order to extend reproductive longevity.
0: It's such an interesting and complex question. And it's become very clear through this discussion that it really is in the embryonic stages, if you will, of development. So I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to kind of forecast into the future about what these kinds of medical and technological developments could hold in terms of these life changing discoveries that could really change the course of not only individual lives and families, but society in general. So I'd like to take the opportunity now to ask you to speculate a little bit about the future. I mean, what are the dream outcomes that you envision for the consortium? What is success? Look like for you in one, five, or 10 years? You know, what excites you about this? And what's your definition of a home run, as it were, in terms of success coming out of all this?
1: Well, the moonshot, right? I mean, the blue sky moonshot, if everything were to work and we just fix the problem we're trying to fix, is that we would understand what causes ovarian aging. We would get rid of menopause and we would give women not just control over their reproductive future but also empower every aspect of their (laughs) well-being and at the same time gain knowledge that's going to help us define what causes aging overall
0: (laughs) well that's a tall order
1: yeah i mean i do call it a moonshot we really are thinking about it that way
0: i'm glad you have modest goals that's a good good way to start
1: (laughs) i mean what's the point otherwise we're trying to change the world here
0: (laughs) so my last question to you is really open-ended If our listeners had one message to take away that you would like them to take away from this conversation, what would that be?
1: The dominant narrative in reproductive longevity has been that fertility is limited to this finite period of adulthood, which is significantly shorter for women than for men, and that menopause in midlife is something that is inevitable. We're trying to change that. And I really want people to think about a scenario where women aren't constrained by an immutable biological clock, to think about a world where women aren't subject to the detrimental health effects of menopause, and just to consider for a moment the implications for social, economic, and personal empowerment that that freedom of choice and freedom from health risks would give to half the population.
0: Thank you very much, Jen. This has been a very interesting and far-ranging conversation an extremely complex and interesting topic. Thank you very much for joining us and being so generous with your thoughts on what is clearly a very important scientific and cultural topic.
1: Thank you, Vav, this was really fun and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to
0: me. Well, it was fun for me too. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for the future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com or on Twitter at BioAge Podcast. You can also follow our sponsor BioAge Labs on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.